0: Friends, our sermon passage is from Romans 4. We'll actually be looking at chapter 3, verses 27, and then through the whole chapter of 4. So if you would, turn into your Bibles. And I've been told that the page number is not exactly right, um, so 611 will be close if it's not right. So you kind of thumb around there. Uh, But Romans... And we'll start in verse 27. But last week we looked at Romans 3 and I stopped short of verse 27. And the reason being is because you'll see pretty obviously two of the points or two of the questions that I'm going to be asking this afternoon uh, come from those few verses in chapter 3. But what I want to do is implicitly teach us that Scripture is not meant... To be just divided up into chapters as though they have a neat little bow on them, but that this is a letter and that there's overlapping pieces. And you remember I said last week that you know I even had to call my my uh, doctoral supervisor last, uh, well a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago to ask him the difference between grace and faith. You know I should probably know that, uh, but it's the reason why it's difficult is because these are so intertwined. We're going to see these three pieces in the the solas of the Reformation. Grace, faith, and Christ, those three are intermingled on purpose. And in the same way, we see here in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. And I did that intentionally to kind of give you handles on that we can think, okay, when I think about the Protestant Reformation, Romans 3, 4, and 5. That's it. That's your that's your sandwich. Um, and so Scripture, though, itself. Overlays its arguments, and we'll see that we'll see that today. We'll see that Paul goes back to chapter two and and something he said. You know, so so it's not just nice contained pericopes or teachings, but that all of these teachings are intertwined and related to each other. And so we 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 talked about last week that sola gratia or grace alone speaks about God's initiative. Speaks about God's initiative towards rebels. And I spent two-thirds of of our time together talking about how you and I are rebels, and we love sin. And yet, you may have found yourself thinking, and I think even one person said out loud when I said, We love sin. No, I don't. (laughs) You know what? That's God's grace. That's God's grace for you to be able to say, No, I, I don't love sin. But I do love sin. You know, this Romans 7 battle that Paul has. I love sin, but I hate sin. Because uh, Martin Luther spoke about this schizophrenia that we have in our own lives. That he said we are simultaneously saints and sinners at the same time. This is what's called the already not yet in the Bible. So we're already saved, but we're not yet fully saved. And so we're stuck in that in-between time to where we await the redemption of our bodies that Paul will talk about later in this letter of Romans, Romans chapter 8. And we await for, we long, we're groaning, we're saying, Lord, I, I hate my sin. Why do I love it so much? I hate it, but I love it. And we can't decide because we are at war within ourselves, both outside, remember, and inside. So while we've been adopted into God's family, it's finished. While we've been adopted into God's family, we're still learning the ropes. You know, I prayed for the orphans just a moment ago that those who are adopted into a family, it's done, the paperwork's already been signed, it's finished. You know, if there all of it is yours. All of this inheritance is yours, and yet you got to learn what it's like to be a wireman. You got to learn how to walk and how to talk and how to think like a wireman. Or like your own family, unless you want to walk and talk and think like my family, which is fine. Um, So, with that being said, I want us to have lodged in our minds this fact that God's grace, that, that sola gratia is God's initiative, His grace towards sinners. And now faith, faith alone, is our response. is our response to this great God in faith. He opens our eyes and we see Him for who He is and we love Him. So if you would turning your bibles to Romans chapter 3 verses verse 27 Romans chapter 3 verse 27 Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit writes this Then what becomes of our boasting it is excluded by what kind of law And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for these words. We thank You for Father Abraham who had many sons both circumcised and uncircumcised, and we are in that train. We are in that family by faith in Your promise. And so, Father, we pray this morning, or this afternoon, rather, that we would be gripped afresh with this grace. And, Father, that You would send Your Holy Spirit To minister to each of us where we're at. Some of us are downcast and burdened. Some of us need to hear that we are loved. That we are accepted. That though we are torn, you will bind us up. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you minister to each of us in our own particular way that we are needing you this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I've already alluded to the fact I've got three points. There are actually three questions. And so, there are going to be three questions that come from our text today. And then we're going to consider two implications of those questions. So, I'm going to answer the questions, but then we're going to consider what are the implications for our own lives in light of the answers to the questions. Our first question why does Paul speak about boasting? A little weird. He hasn't spoken about boasting in all of chapter 3. But he picks up this idea of boasting. He says it's excluded. But what is it? And why speak about boasting at all? You see, this concept of boasting is really in back of our whole passage. And so our passage, he starts out with this question, but then he unpacks it. So he has this idea and then he explains it in the majority of chapter 4, if not the whole thing. And so the whole book of Romans really is set in this frame of boasting. Will you boast in yourself and what you are able to do or will you boast in someone else? In God, who has done what you could not do. So that is not only our question for all of Romans, but it's our question really in chapter four that he's going to respond to. And this idea of boasting goes back to chapter two, verse 17. Paul writes this: He says, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So he's he's talking to Jews, he's writing to Jewish folks who have the Mosaic Law. And he says, you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God. But then a few verses later, he says in verse 23 of chapter 2, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. A true Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, not the flesh. It's a matter of the heart by the Spirit Not by the letter. This is what Paul is at pains to explain to his his church in Rome. And if we're not careful here in Greenville, this will be the very thing we succumb to. That we have God's word that that we talked about two weeks ago. And we subtly begin to take his word, his precepts, and we say, these are really good. And they are. We saw in, in Psalm 19 that the precepts of the Lord are right. Right? In Psalm 119, we, we see that it's like honey on the on the tongue. God's precepts are good and righteous altogether. But the problem is, just like with Israel, and the problem with us oftentimes is that we take the law because it's manageable. We can measure our lives by it. We take that law and we substitute the law for the lawgiver right we abandon the gracious lawgiver for this law because it's we think it's easy and it's a hard taskmaster if you think that you can listen to the law and think that that's the easy path you'll find out that the wages of that path those wages are death and that's what Paul is talking about, both in Galatians that we heard a moment ago, Galatians 3. And in fact, I would encourage you, um, as as you read Romans 1 through 6, I would encourage you to read the sister epistle, um, Galatians, Galatians 1 through 6. You'll see, and and it, and it starts to bring to light so many things that Paul is talking about in Galatians and in Romans. They overlay because this is the problem, not only in the Jewish church in Rome. But this is the, the, the problem in the church in Galatia, too. And that's our problem, too. And until we come to terms with that, that you and I love sin, but by God's grace we hate it. Until we come to terms that we are it's not just a past event that we were sinners and that we were rebels, that's true. But that we are rebels even now when we say, I want to do my own thing. Remember I said, we're like someone who says, oh, I'm going to put my hand in the cookie jar and I'm going to eat the cookie in front of you because I'm the captain of my own ship. That's a reference to the Invictus poem, which I happen to like, but um, in case you're curious. So the problem is, this way of treating God's law not only misses the point of the law, but it totally eviscerates the law. The law was meant to point us to to Christ is meant to point us to God. In fact, I think there are four things that the law uh, intended to do: is that it's to show us how we ought to live our lives in, de- in, in God's demands. What does He demand of us? And, it spo- and then it drives us to our knees when we consider the law, because then we have to humbly depend, Lord. I cannot do this law, and I need You. I need you to help me to obey this law. And then what does it do? It pushes us to God. It pushes us to God because we break His law continually. But even over all of that, what does the law do? The law is meant to magnify the beauty and the worth and the glory of God. This righteous One. This Holy One. Showing us Images of his very nature. But what happens when we rely on the law? What happens? We magnify our resolve to obey the law. Instead of magnifying God. Instead of pushing us to God, we push others away from us. Who don't live the way we'd like them to live. We push them away because they're not keeping the standard. It excludes others. Not only pushes them away, but it huddles together. And it says, this is our group, and this is our law, and you can come another time when you've got your act together. But lastly, and most hideously, the law, which was intended to be good, becomes a tool for our own self-exaltation. Becomes a tool for our own reliance. Becomes a tool for what we learned in Philippians of vainglory, The very antithesis of the law. By, by taking the law and relying on it as though in it there was life. And God says, no, I'm the one who gives life. This is just a path to lead to me. But that leads to the second question. How? Because Paul says in verse 31... We uphold the law. So how do we uphold the law? It's really awkward. How do we uphold the law? So in chapters 4 and verses 1 through 15 are Paul's explanation for that question. The short answer is that faith was essential to salvation before the Mosaic Law came. So I oftentimes will ask my Old Testament class, how did the saints in the Old Testament... How were they saved? And a lot of times, too many times, and maybe this would be your answer, Old Testament saints were saved by obeying the law. That's not true. Old Testament saints were saved, as we see here, by faith in the one to come. They were saved in the same way that we are saved, by faith in the one in Messiah, By faith in the perfect one. As they looked at themselves and they said, I cannot do this law. And as you look at yourselves, the law written on your own heart, and you say, I can't obey you, God. I can't be perfect as you are perfect. I'm trying, but I can't. And so it shoves you. It pushes you to Jesus. That's how the Old Testament saints were saved too. So they looked to Messiah. They did, The name Jesus wasn't on their lips, but Meshiach, Messiah was on their lips. And they called out for him. The prophets are calling out for Messiah to come and reign. You see, throughout this section, the word count. In fact, I have my little worksheet I do um, my exegesis on. At this word count or reckon, it's all over the place in this first part of, of, uh, well, in in chapter 3, the end of 3, and then the beginning of 4. It's all over the place. And so when you see the word count in our version, the English Standard Version, you can also, I I actually prefer the term reckon because it reminds me of my hometown in Kentucky, that when you reckon that somebody's ignorant, you are counting them as ignorant. And there's no hope for you, I promise. In Glasgow, Kentucky, there's no hope for an ignorant person. But you're reckoned that way, and that's what's counted to you, and there's no getting around it. And so in the same way, that's what Paul's saying here. It's like we're sitting at a table, Say we're sitting at a, at a table and we start counting out our money on the table. And we're counting out our money before God. This is the picture that you ought to have in your mind. I'm putting down my money. Okay. Here's how much I got. I got $100. And then got, there's some kind of transaction going on. that's how we oftentimes think about how we relate to God. But that wasn't the purpose of the law. See, look at verse 2. If Abraham was justified or made right with God by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, Abraham sitting at the table. God comes and sits across the table from him and tells him, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. Abraham, who is almost 100 years old, right? In, in chapter 12, he's a little younger. But in chapter 15 that Megan read just a moment ago, he's about 80 to 100 years old. And so Abraham's sitting at the table. He's like, uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, how's that, I don't know how that's going to happen. And then he started considering his wife Sarah. And he's like, that's really not going to happen. But I believe you. I can't do this. Sarah can't do this. But you said you were going to do it. And I'm going to believe you. Abraham believes that God is able to make good on his promise. He looks at God across from the money changing table and says, if you say it, that will be the only hope that I have. I will hope against hope that this is true. Because we see in the next verse, verse 3, Paul sets up Two options. sets up two options in verse 3. He says, you work, you get paid your due. You trust, you receive a gift. And that's what Abraham decided to do. He said, I'm going to trust, and I'm going to receive. I'm going to stop counting my money, and I'm going to stop relying on my ability to make this promise happen. I tried that with Hagar. It didn't work out too well. And so Abraham says, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to rest on you. I'm going to let my soul be still before you. And really that's the essence of Christianity. These two ways to live. Relying on yourself and your works. And if you do that, you better have every T crossed and every I dotted. But if you trust, if you believe God's promise, in Jesus, then you receive as a gift. You receive, and there's no better way to live your life. And we're going to look at that and our implications today. See, but that's not the point of the law, right? Is that every T being crossed and I dotted? If you want to live that way, you can, you can do that. But again, go to Galatians, and he he talks at length about this. That you, if you work, you're going to get paid something, and it's not it. it it's not going to be good because you've got to obey everything written in the law. See, that, that's not the way it was for our father Abraham. It wasn't that way for King David either. See, David was quoted in chapter 3. He's quoted again <clears throat> here in chapter 4 from Psalm 32. And I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 32 in your own time. But Paul picks out these two verses to show that eternal life has always been a gift. King David wrote this, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Notice receiving. I'm covered. I'm covered. I'm forgiven. I'm receiving something. I'm not doing something. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed. Blessed, that is the very word that God used for Abraham. He said, I will bless you and I will multiply you, and your children will be like the the stars in the sky. This idea of blessing is tantamount to understanding what Paul's argument is. That if you want the blessing that, that, that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, we have to first understand that to be blessed is to be recipient, to receive ever and always. See, Paul concludes this explanation in verse 13. He writes this, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on what? may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, circumcised and uncircumcised. So then, our third question, how then are we made right with God? How then are we made right with God? How are rebels made right with God? Yes, it begins by God's initiative. He breaks through enemy lines. He comes to you and to me, enemies. And he wipes the mud out of our eyes. And when we see him as glorious and powerful and strong and able to save and majestic, we open our eyes and and he takes the mud out and we can see him and we embrace him in faith. And he's nothing like our rebel leader had told us what he was, is he? You know, we were blinded by our rebel leader. And then He opens up our eyes in grace and we see Him as lovely. We see Him as worth every last breath that we have. The one who broke through those enemy lines. We open our eyes, we embrace Him and we reach out and take hold of Him by faith. You can save me out of this miry clay. Look at verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. I love that phrase. In hope, he believed against hope. This is otherworldly kind of hope. His body was as good as dead. He was fully convinced that God was able to do as he promised. If the promise of blessing was going to happen, it had to happen because God made it happen. You see, Paul then, through this whole paragraph, then says, Abraham... Believed that God was able to bring life out of his dead body, close to 100 years old, that this this shouldn't be lost on us, that, that this is the very same kind of faith that you and I are to exercise, that Lord, you are able to bring life out of someone who's dead. I believe it, and I receive it. I accept it as a gift. And see, why, why do we do that? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him from the dead for our justification, and he seated him with him. And if he did that in time and space, and there are more than 500 witnesses, you can be rest assured that if Jesus was raised again, God can give life to your body. God can give you life and resurrect you on the last day because he's resurrected his very Son. He who believes in Jesus, he who believes in the resurrecting God, who trusts him, who rests on him, you and I. We too can be given life. Indeed, we see in part, but we'll see in full on that day. We see glimpses. Lord, I hate my sin, but I love it. And we have mud on our feet and we trapse it in the house sometimes, don't we? And we get bogged down in that sin. But you know, God says to you and he says to me that I love you in spite of your sin. In spite of your sin, I love you. But you know what's even awesome? more awesome than that? Is that he, he says, because of our sin, because of our sin, we trust Him even more. So we trust Him in spite of our sin, but then we trust Him because of our sin. It drives us to Him. And there we'll find rest. We're not going to find appointing finger that says you didn't do enough we'll see a God who says I've been waiting this is the beauty of faith alone this is what captured Martin Luther's heart who as a monk was trying so hard to be right with God and maybe you're finding yourself trying so hard to be made right with God and God would say to you Stop and open your eyes. I accept you on the basis of a perfect righteousness of my Son. It's done. It's completed. Welcome. That's the majesty of justification by grace alone through faith alone. We don't have to rest on our righteousness. You don't have to rest on your righteousness, on your good works. You rest on another. You rest on the perfect God-man. That we'll talk about next week. But there are two implications for today. That I think are really important in our context. That if this is true. If faith alone is true. It ought to make us the most humble people in the world. If you consider... That you did nothing to earn your salvation. You can do nothing to lose that salvation. Because it doesn't depend on you. It ought to humble us. It ought to throw us on our faces and say, Lord, I I cannot boast in my ability to cross the T's and dot the I's anymore. Because we were in the middle right, of lobbing grenades at God. And while we were yet rebels, Christ died for us. We have nothing to boast about, nothing to brag about. Like, man, I'm glad I was smart enough. I'm glad I put the, 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 you know, the logic together. Our logic was skewed toward us. We were turned in on ourselves. And God straightens us and points us to another, to someone else who can do it. And lastly, faith alone frees you and me from performance. Faith alone frees you and me from performance. This is what's scandalous. This is what Martin Luther got in trouble with the church about. This is what's scandalous about the gospel is that people are afraid that if you say faith alone, then you're going to have a lot of people who go out on Monday and do as they please. And then they're going to wash themselves up on Sunday and come to church. If you understand grace, if you understand that you have not done anything to earn your salvation, how will you not fall in love and be or trained in the ways of the gospel? That we've been adopted and we are by His Spirit. Did you did you hear that in, in Romans chapter 4? That the Spirit of God dwells within His people. And that Spirit is not going to lead you into sin. It's not by keeping a, a register of rights and wrongs. It's about walking in step with the Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8. It's about living a life that's captured and raptured with the love of God. And He says, I love you. And, and if somebody says, I love you and I accept you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. What does that do to your obedience? It happens as a result. It's a fruit that happens as a result of those roots that are deep in the ground of justification. Of being made right with God based on Jesus. Because if we let works creep into our lives. If we let performance be the measure of our relationship with God. We're going to be miserable people. We're going to constantly be counting and we're going to be constantly measuring ourselves. And let me, let me ask you just a few questions that may help you diagnose these things. And this is what I have to ask myself to make sure I'm not falling into this, this legalistic mentality. Do you feel defeated when you sin? Do you feel utterly defeated? Man, I'm never going to get this right. Do you find it difficult to see the good and the beautiful around you all the time. Are you constantly looking through dark glasses at the world? So the shoe is going to drop sometime. Is that the is that the voice that you keep hearing in your head? And do you take yourself too seriously? Do you find it hard to laugh at yourself? Those are telltale signs that you are probably trying to do something and perform and earn something. Because we can talk about the gospel of grace and we can be committed to it. But when we're honest with ourselves, we can rely on our own works to commend us to God. I can't go to God because I've looked at that or I've said that or I've done that. And God would say to you and to me, say, I love you. Did you hear Hosea, Prophet Hosea and that assurance of the gospel? What did Hosea do with his his wife, Gomer? He went back to her again and again and again. Isn't that you and me? We choose ourselves and our ways over God's ways. God, in His initiating grace, comes to you, and He comes to you again and again. And He loves you. And He's not surprised that your failures... In spite of our sin, we trust Him. And because of our sin, we trust Him. I'd like for us to take a few moments to consider that. As we think about our lives, those questions, those kind of diagnostic questions. Um, If you find yourself feeling defeated. If you find it difficult to see the good and beautiful in the world. And maybe you can't laugh at yourself; you take yourself too seriously, or any of those symptomatic questions. Do you find yourself saying, "Yeah, that, that's me"? You know what? God says, "I love you. I've given my son. How will I not with you, with him, give you all things?" So I'd like for us to take just a few moments in quietness, and uh, maybe the Lord would have you write some things down to, to kind of process everything, but to be able to take some moments to to ask. The Holy Spirit to to speak to you, to minister to you, and to help you know that you are loved. So please do that, and then and then we'll uh, take the Lord's Supper together.